We're going to read this morning from 2 Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23, starting with the last words of David, uh, very significant words for us. Uh, anytime we, we sing a psalm, as we, we read here of, of how David describes the Lord speaking through him, uh, but though, though the chapter describes by, by telling us that David's last words, at least official prophetic words, uh, the rest of the chapter contains events taken uh, from throughout David's reign and even before David was on the throne. And it's going to be, be the second half of the chapter that our focus is on a bit later on today as we think of some of these mighty men of King David. But... Second uh, Samuel chapter 23, and we'll read the whole chapter. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, attack Mennonite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. 
Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded a spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Harod. Elkah of Harod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anatoth. Mebunai, the Hushathite. Zalmon, the Ahuhite. Mahari of Netufa. Heleb, the son of Bana of Netufa, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Beniah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, Abialbon, the Arbathite, Asmapheth of Bahurim, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahayam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphelet, the son of Ahashbe of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahedophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Parar, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zeleg, the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruah, Ira, the Ithrite, Garab, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. Amen. It will be helpful if you can have Second Samuel 23 open in front of you. Our focus uh, will be on verses 8 through 17. We're not always good in the church at recognising people's service for God. Now maybe it's different here, but at least let me speak generally. Uh, perhaps someone teaches Sabbath school for years, uh, but their preparation and work are largely taken for granted. Or someone else cleans a church every week, uh, and the only time someone comments is when they miss a bit. Or, or someone leads the singing every week, and uh, uh, one one week someone who's never thanked them for doing it uh, gives off that they've started a psalm a bit high. Now the natural human reaction to receiving uh, criticism uh, rather than recognition for what we do, for being criticised but never thanked, is to say, well fine then, I'll not do it anymore, if that's all the thanks that I get. 
And don't we hear that all the time in the world? If we're involved in other committees, other organisations, uh, it, it doesn't doesn't take too long before someone someone uh, just just goes off in a huff because they've been criticised for for the way they've done something. But of course, in the church, we're not primarily doing what we're doing for other people, uh, at least not primarily. We are commanded through love, serve one another. But ultimately our service is for God. And as Jesus puts it, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And yet, and yet, all that is true But all over the Bible, we have people who are recognized for their service to God. And that brings us to the first thing that we want to learn from this chapter in front of us this morning. A chapter with with a lot of hard to pronounce names. Uh, And that first thing we want to learn is that your service to the king is not overlooked. Your service to the king is not overlooked. All over the Bible, as I say, we have people who are recognized for their service to God. What did Jesus say about the woman who anointed him before he went to the cross? He said, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. He tells them to greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me. He writes to Timothy and says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and not been ashamed of my chains. You might think that when it came to the letters of Paul that were going to be recorded for all time in Scripture, uh, because, because we know Paul wrote other letters as well, but, but the ones that would make it into the Bible, uh, that would be for all people in all ages, uh, we would think that they wouldn't uh, perhaps contain personal references to people that we know nothing about. But it's as if Paul cannot write to a church without highlighting some of the people who are serving away there. And the fact that his recognition of individuals and families is recorded is surely because it's meant to be an example to us. If God himself points out the faithful service of his people, if God delights to do that, well, should we not do the same? Might be culturally uh, something we find a bit awkward, but it's all over the place in the Bible. And yet if this morning your service to God is wrongly overlooked by many of God's people, don't let that consume you, don't let it eat you up, but instead take comfort that your service is not overlooked by God. Your service is not overlooked by God, even if it's overlooked by everyone else. 
Dear Ralph Davis has a beautiful little line in his commentary on this chapter where he suggests that maybe the reason the Bible loves lists is because God never tires of naming the names of his people. Uh, Maybe sometimes we we come across a list in the Bible and we're not exactly enthusiastic, but the Bible loves lists. And maybe it's because God loves naming the names of his people. Ordinary people just like us. And we have one of those lists in front of us. It it contains the names of David's mighty men, as they're called in verse 8. Or his chief men, as they're called in verse 13. They're a bit like Navy SEALs. They're his most trusted, uh, most valiant warriors. There's a group of around 30 of them, uh, which probably... uh, fluctuated a bit, a bit as, as people died and other people were drafted in. Uh, but of the, the 30 or so men, uh, three in particular are singled out as the most trusted. Just like with Jesus' disciples, uh, I'm sure the boys and girls could tell us uh, how many disciples there were. There were, there were 12 disciples, but, but among those disciples there were three. There were Peter, James uh, and John. Three uh, special disciples uh, among the rest. And the, the comparison to Jesus when, when it comes to the life of David is important. Uh, and it's not just, just there in, in little details. It's there in the whole picture of his life. David was God's covenant king. And so to fight for David was to fight for the kingdom of God in the world. Just like we do today. Though not with sword or or spear, but with the armour of God. Uh, The sword of the spirit, uh, the belt of truth, and so on. Uh, As we fight sin, as we take the gospel out into the world. And Jesus doesn't overlook the work of his servants. He said to his disciples, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. And in the meantime, we are called to serve him faithfully, even though the day we receive that reward may be a long time in the future. One thing we need to realize about the people who served David in this chapter is that they were serving him at a time when to serve him was not the easy option. They were serving David at a time when it wasn't the easy option to do so. These final chapters of Second Samuel, uh, they're not really in chronological order compared to the rest of the book. They're more like summary chapters. Verse 13 here speaks about David in the cave of Adullam. And when was that? Well, that was back in 1 Samuel 22, when Saul was still king. Now, David had been anointed king by Samuel at that point. He was God's choice for king, uh, and he knew that. Uh, Some others knew that. But David wasn't yet on the throne. He wasn't yet publicly recognized as king. And we're in a similar position today. Jesus is 
king today. But most people don't recognize that. Most people uh, refuse to recognize that. After all, a crucified Messiah doesn't look very impressive. And yet it is now that we're called to serve him. One day Jesus will split the skies and return. Physically, visibly, every eye will see him. But it will be too late to start serving him then. Rather what will count is whether we served him when his cause on earth wasn't popular. And so I trust that right from the beginning today this sermon will be an encouragement for you to keep on serving him even when his cause isn't popular and for the rest of our time today I want to highlight from these verses three situations that you could find yourself in where you might need some encouragement to keep going where you might need some encouragement to keep on serving him in a particular area of service So having seen firstly uh, that our service to the king is not overlooked, we want to look now at three situations in this chapter where the temptation to throw in the towel could have been overwhelming. And those three situations are when a particular area of service feels like a a waste, whether a waste of of energy, a waste of time, or, or a waste of your gifts, or when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. And the third one is when you're left to serve on your own. Do any of those scenarios feel close to home for anyone? Have you ever felt like you're wasting or, or have wasted your energy? Do you think that the place that you're currently being called to serve God isn't really the ideal place where you'd like to serve God and have you ever thought I could just do with a bit more support it can be hard to serve when any of those three things are true any one of them can bring with it a high potential for discouragement but if all three of them are true or at least seem to us to be true it can really be a toxic mix And so the first of those three situations we want to look at under our second heading this morning is when it feels like a waste. So so secondly today, your service to the king is not overlooked even when it feels like a waste. Probably the most well-known of the events recorded in this chapter is in verses 14 through 17. David says there, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. What was behind this desire to get water from that specific well in Bethlehem? Well, it surely can't have been that they didn't have water where they were. 1 Samuel 22 tells us that there were 400 men at the cave of Adullam. There's no suggestion that lack of water was a problem. Uh, Was it just that the water in the well in Bethlehem tasted better? Uh, 
perhaps uh, perhaps it was like that. Uh, I, I'm not sure uh, if, like me, you've noticed that Club Orange has finally capitulated to the sugar tax. There used to be 48% sugar in a can. It's down to 13%. And, and I have a craving for, for the old. I, I even went, went on a mission uh, to Donegal last time I was over to see if they were still selling the old stuff, but sadly not. Uh, so maybe it was just Bethlehem's water tasted better. Some have suggested that there was a more noble motive behind David's request. And it was a desire that Bethlehem, the city of his birth, would be taken out of Philistine hands. He was longing for the day when that could come about. Uh, To be able to go freely into Bethlehem and drink water there would mean that Bethlehem had been liberated from the Philistines. And if that is the right interpretation, well, three of the chief men overhear David and take him literally. And they go and break through the Philistine camp and get water and bring it back to David. But when he realizes what they've done and that they've risked their lives to get it, he won't drink it. He sees it as blood water because of what they've put on the line to get it for him. In fact, some some of the, the church fathers commenting on this, such as St. Augustine, they see David's longing for water as an uncontrolled desire, as a sinful desire. And it's only when his men risk their lives to get it for him uh, that he comes to his senses and dedicates the water to God. But whatever the reason for his desire, his people's service is precious to him as we sang in Psalm 72 uh, singing prophetically of the Lord Jesus uh, the blood of his people is precious in his sight uh, it was the same for David and so what does he do with this precious water pours it on the ground <laughs> what ingratitude they've done all this for him and he just pours it out Well, not at all. It's not ingratitude. He's pouring it out before the Lord. It is not an act of waste, but an act of worship. Someone has said that he pours it out not because it is trash, but because it is treasure. When all is said and done, the men who've risked their lives have nothing to show for what they've done. And yet a beautiful thing has happened. They've risked their lives for their king. And David realizes that he is not worthy of it. And so he pours it out before the Lord as an act of worship. He pours it out before the only one who is truly worthy of such devotion. And if you think about it, if you add it all up, We don't often have a lot to show for our service to God. Think about how we spend our Lord's days devoting a day to God. We've had a couple of bank holidays lately. Uh, Perhaps you you spent one of them uh, decluttering your house or or, or tidying up the garden a a bit. You, You can get a lot done in a whole day. If you don't have small children running about. 
I'm, I'm sure we could all do a lot with a Sunday if we used it for ourselves. 52 of those days a year, if we used them for ourselves, we could get a lot done, a lot of tangible things done. But how, how much do we have to show after a day of worship and fellowship? We don't have a lot in tangible terms. Uh, maybe our houses are, are messier than they were at the start of the day. And someone might look at it and say that it's the equivalent of pouring water on the ground. But worship is never a waste. Worship is never a waste. And what about that day at home when you get nothing done? You mothers of young children particularly. Not because you're lazy, not because you didn't intend to get anything done, but because the the small people seem to be plotting against you. Maybe you think, you know, I've got a degree, I could be doing more than this. The UK Chancellor is telling me to go back to work and stop being economically inactive. And yet at the end of that apparently unproductive day, those small people are still alive. They've been kept safe. They've been disciplined when they've stepped out of line. They've been watching. They've been learning. They've been loved. They've been trained up a little more in the way that they should go. When what you're doing is for Jesus, whether that's in your your worship or your unglamorous work for him, the world says, why this waste? Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Serving God when it seems like a waste, it's never a waste. It's precious in his sight. But then, thirdly, today, which is the, the second situation where it might feel, uh, or it might be easy to feel discouraged in your service, is when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. So thirdly, your service to the king is not overlooked, even when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. In 1848, there was a a failed Irish nationalist rebellion led by the Young Irelanders. It culminated on the 29th of July in a gunfight, which became known as the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. Uh, One of the rebels was shot dead by police. Another was fatally wounded. But even though it was a matter of life and death, it's hard not to smile after a battle named after a cabbage patch. I don't think any other country in the world could boast a battle by that name. And you can imagine children talking and saying, well, well, my great-granddad, he died in World War II. And someone else says, well, my great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad, he fought at the Battle of Waterloo. You really want to be the one who, who pipes up and says, well, my great, 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 great granddad, he, he fought at the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. But we're not all called to take on the enemy in glorious battlefields, as if there is such a thing anyway. 
And here in verses 11 and 12, we have a man called Shammah who takes his stand in a plot of ground full of lentils. I'm sure there are people we're all looking forward to meeting in heaven. People from the Bible, great missionaries from the past, others from church history. But as anyone ever said, I can't wait to meet the guy who defended the lentil field. And yet lentil fields need defended because God's people need fed. And God calls most of his followers to serve him in unglamorous situations. I applied this on Wednesday night to the situation in Stranraer. Humanly speaking, our town doesn't have a lot going for it, nor is there anything outwardly impressive about the church, whether the building or those who meet in it. We have a girl from Northern Ireland who teaches in Stranraer. She worships with us. Her dad's the minister of a Presbyterian church over here, possibly even the biggest congregation in the PCI. The other week, they had 28 people come into membership 28, that, that's, that's literally our morning average attendance. Uh, we are just a lentil patch in comparison. But I'm sure you could say the same here in Trinity. It wouldn't take long to find other churches you could compare yourselves to and end up feeling like a lentil patch in comparison. In the RP Church around the world, we're all pretty much serving God in lentil fields. Uh, some are just a bit bigger than others. And the challenge for me uh, and the challenge for you is are we willing to serve God in a lentil field if that's where he calls us to serve him? Would we be more committed to or enthusiastic about our churches if, if there was uh, more about them that was outwardly attractive if there were more people our own age, do we despise the lentil fields that God calls us to serve in at times? In verse 11 here, everyone else fled. Everyone else abandoned the lentil field, but Shammah stood his ground. And the times when the enemy is growing in strength, and there's nothing particularly attractive about a situation, people will do that. They'll say, well, well, I'm just going to watch church online or, or I'll go elsewhere where, where things are a bit easier or, or I'll walk away altogether. I'm not going to invest my life in a lentil field. But Shammah did. Either he was going to kill the Philistines or the Philistines were going to kill him. But he wasn't moving from that lentil field. Following Jesus... It's about denying ourselves. It's about taking up the cross. It's not about looking for the easiest place to serve God. You young people, if you you move away for university or or for work, don't just ask, well, what church is it that all the other students are going to so I can go there? Ask if there are any lentil fields that you can go to and take a stand with a handful of others and look to God to bless that. So thirdly, some encouragement for when you feel you're serving God in an unglamorous situation. 
lentilfields need defended. God highlights the guy who defended the lentilfield. The fourth and final potentially discouraging situation is when we're left serving on our own. So fourthly, your service to the king is not overlooked even when you're left serving on your own. We've already noticed this type of scenario in passing with Shama and the lentil field, but, but particularly now we want to focus on Eleazar in verse 9. We read there, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. And yet the next verse goes on to say, he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Now there are a couple of interesting things about Eleazar that we don't have time to get into this morning. One is about when these events took place because there is an intriguing possibility uh, when we put together other parts of of 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles that it's describing the aftermath of when David killed Goliath. Uh, when the Israelites were chasing the Philistines uh, and the suggestion is that Eleazar's unit gave up pursuing them but he kept going. The other thing that I'm not going to talk about this morning is the whole business of his hand clinging to his sword. Uh, We could look at examples from history of where this has happened to others uh, either because the blood has uh, congealed and acted like glue or, or because the muscles have so seized up that people literally couldn't let go of their swords. If you're interested in more of those, I did preach a whole sermon on Eleazar in Stranar, where I also talked about which character in Pilgrim's Progress is based on him. Uh, So if anyone can tell me that after church, I'll be impressed which Pilgrim's Progress character is based on Eleazar, uh, though you'll probably only get it if you've read part two of Pilgrim's Progress uh, instead of just part one. Uh, So those are all the things we're not going to talk about. Uh, But what I do want to notice is that Eleazar isn't someone who followed the crowd. They withdrew. He didn't. Everyone else is doing it. Wasn't an argument with him. Everyone else is running away. So what? No one else is taking their responsibilities seriously. So what? God may have given us ten talents, or he may have given us one talent. But either way, on the day of judgment, we will be called to answer for what we did with what God gave to us, not to answer for what others did with what God gave to them. Eleazar just gets on with it when others run away. And yet serving on your own or serving with very little help or serving when there are other people who could be helping and are not, it brings its own temptations. There's a temptation to discouragement, but there's also the temptation to spend a lot of time blaming others for not playing their part. Perhaps we face the temptation to be despondent about the state of the church whether the church in general or our own congregations. 
But again, our responsibility is for ourselves. Our calling is to be faithful in the role that God has given us and the place that he has put us. It's a lot easier to complain about what others are not doing than to just get on with the job God has given us to do. Charles Spurgeon has a great sermon on Eleazar. He says it's very easy to pick holes in other people's work, but it is far more profitable to do better work yourself. And he asks, is there a fool in all the world who cannot criticize? It's not something to remember if we find ourselves being critical of others. It may be that our criticism is right, but it's also true that any fool can criticize. And do we, do we find that high levels of criticism are usually paired with low levels of service? Spurgeon sums it up. Therefore, if thou be wise, my brother, do not cavil at others, but arise thyself and smite the Philistines. That's what Eleazar did. Sometimes we perhaps need to remind ourselves that our responsibilities are not reduced by the laxness of others. There can be the feeling, maybe we've even felt this, if people around me aren't serving God wholeheartedly, there's no point in me doing it. But surely the failures of others should lead to us striving harder, not slackening off. Again, I find it hard to improve on Spurgeon, so I'll just quote him. He says, are your fellow Christians worldly? You should yourself become more spiritual and heavenly minded. Are they sleepy? Be you the more awake. Are they lax? Be you the more strict. Are they unkind? Be you the more full of love. Set your watch all the more strictly because you see that others are overcome. And be you doubly diligent where you perceive that others are negligent. The failures of others are not meant to give us ammunition for criticism. Rather, they should lead to us being all the more diligent. And remember, your service to the king is not overlooked, even when you're left serving on your own. But just as we close this morning, a final thing to encourage you to keep going is remember who you're serving. Remember who you're serving. Because you are serving a far greater king than David. There's one name on the list of the 30 or so men that really sticks out. A name that sticks in the throat a little bit. Did you notice it right at the end? Uriah the Hittite. He's the one that David killed so that he could steal his wife. David was a great king. But at times David took advantage of those who served him. Perhaps he did it with those men who went to Bethlehem to get water for him. He definitely did it with Uriah. But Jesus never does that. He is the greatest king. And also unlike David, Jesus doesn't actually need us to fight for him. But he calls us to do so. And he honours us when we answer that call. He honours us when we do what was just our duty the whole time. And to give the last word to Matthew Henry. Christ, the son of David, 
has his worthies too. Who like David's are influenced by his example. Fight his battles against the spiritual enemies of his kingdom. And in his strength are more than conquerors. Sounds like a pretty good thing to give your life to. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can sing these amazing words about the fact that you take pleasure in your people. And we thank you that we can, like your people of old, joy in our maker and our king. Uh, We thank you that we have so many reasons to joy in you. And we pray that that in light of all that you've done for us, in light of uh, how you've been so gracious to us, we pray that we would be glad to serve you, uh, that we would see that it is your mercy that we have been given any avenue of service. And we pray that that even in the midst of these uh, potential discouragements, uh, we pray that we would uh, remember uh, that you give us uh, the encouragement that we need to keep going. Uh, We pray that you would do that and encourage us today in Jesus' name. Uh, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.